Hello and welcome to eBible Fellowship's Evening Bible Studies with your speaker, Chris McCann. If you'd like more information or to hear more studies, visit our website at www.ebiblefellowship.com. And now, with your evening Bible study, here's Chris McCann. Good evening and welcome to eBible Fellowship's Bible Study in the Book of Genesis. Tonight is study number 25 of Genesis chapter 8. We're going to begin reading in verse 20. And Noah builded an altar unto Jehovah, and took of every clean beast, and of every clean fowl, and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And Jehovah smelled a sweet savor, and Jehovah said in his heart, I will not again curse the ground any more for man's sake, for the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth, neither will I again smite any more everything living as I have done. While the earth remaineth, seed time and harvest, and cold and heat, and summer and winter, and day and night shall not cease. And I'll stop reading there. Now, we've progressed in chapter 8 to the point where the flood that decimated the earth, it, it destroyed everything with the breath of life, it, it rose to 15 cubits above the highest mountain of that time, and it went down. It decreased continually until finally the earth was dried, and then Noah and his family and all the animals disembarked. They came out of the ark, and they entered into a new world. The the ground was completely dry. Um, the ark had stopped. It rested on Mount Ararat. So they they would have gotten out of the ark at that point and descended and then begun their lives, their new lives in this new world, a world that had no other inhabitants, no other people, no other animals. There were other living creatures, but they would have been in the sea. As far as those with the breath of life, right there in that vicinity of the ark, as they came out of it, that was where all creatures with the breath of life dwelt at that time. Nowhere else, nowhere else in all the world was there lions and chickens and zebras, but only right there at that location, and nowhere else in all the vast world were there people. Only the eight souls that exited the ark, Noah, his wife, his three sons and their wives, these were all the people in all the world. And so it was very much like a new beginning, a new start, um, Adam and Eve were the first people. God created Adam from the dust of the ground and Eve from one of Adam's ribs. And there were no other souls, no other people in the world. And so when we find that these eight people that again came out of the ark are the only people in the world, 
it is a picture of a whole new world, a whole new beginning of things. And, and that's why it's such a excellent illustration of the new earth. We can see all the elements that are in view at the end of the world. At the end of the world, God will judge the world. He will destroy all of the wicked people, exactly like he did to the world of Noah's day. God judged the entire world and destroyed all the wicked people in the days of Noah. And at the end of the world, God will destroy the creation. Well, um, it, it was necessary for the creation to continue on because this was only a historical parable that was illustrating the end. So the Lord couldn't very well destroy the creation, but he could destroy all creatures with a breath of life to illustrate the destruction of the creation at the end of the world. And and then it, the Bible tells us after God destroys this world, that he will have delivered a people, or only a remnant of people, out of the whole of mankind. Exactly as we see, again, Noah and his family delivered just a, a tiny percentage, a tiny number out of, uh, well, we guess, it's a speculation, but but it, it's probably not too far off that there were a couple of million people, a handful of million people at most, that populated the earth in, in the days before the flood, and only eight, only eight out of two million, three million, four million were delivered. And, and that's a very tiny remnant. And so at the end of the world, in our time, we find that the earth's population has exploded to seven billion plus now, but seven billion at the time God brought the world into judgment on May 21, 2011. And he saved a remnant out of the whole. And a remnant out of seven billion is millions of people, but still it leaves the vast majority, billions, billions of people. If God saved um, scores of millions, let's say he saved 170 million people at last during the Great Tribulation, that would leave 6,830,000,000 people that were not saved. That, that that is an enormous number it's a it's a tremendous number of people and so we see with the flood the overwhelming number of people perished and only a few survived and were delivered only a few were saved and that's how it is according to the bible at the end of the world so we see that similarity we also know that the bible tells us that God will take these few, his remnant, his elect, out of the world. He will deliver them from that wrath that destroys everything else and bring them into a new heaven and a new earth. What he has uh, promised and calls a promised land. 
And so we see after the judgment, after the water um, goes down and, and the earth dries, Noah and his family, the remnant, enters into a new world, as it were. And, and so it, it is an, it serves as an excellent illustration of what God's plan is for the end of the world. And that's why we're encouraged, uh, regarding the prolonged nature of the judgment of Noah's day that began on the 17th day of the second month. And that's an encouragement to us because May 21, 2011 had the underlying calendar date of the 17th day of the second month, the very day the flood began. And we're finding today, we've learned from the Bible, that God brought to pass a spiritual judgment, and it's a prolonged judgment. It's a prolonged judgment day. And, And just as it was in the historical picture of the flood. And so as we're continuing along, we're encouraged and, and have the expectation that the prolonged judgment will come to a conclusion and God's people will then, well, not get out of a, a literal ark, but we will uh, leave the refuge that Christ's salvation has provided us while we live on the earth, alive and remaining until the end of the world. And we will then be exalted or lifted up into the heavenlies and make that transition from this world to the next. We will, in that way, come out of the ark. We will leave that safe chamber because the uh, indignation has passed. And, and so it is safe to come out. God has secured us. He's delivered us. We have been saved and therefore we now, um, exit this world and enter into that new world. Lazarus come forth. Noah and his family went forth. The animals went forth. And, and so, uh, we will be changed in an instant, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. We'll be New creatures in body and soul, possessing resurrected spiritual bodies, and dwelling upon a new creation that God has created. And, and so we will, um, very much be living out in actual, um, fulfillment of what we're reading concerning Noah and his family and the animals as they come out of the ark. So we wonder, we wonder here in Genesis 8 and in verse 20 about Noah's action of building an altar and taking of every clean beast and of every clean fowl and offer burnt offerings on the altar. This is the first recorded action that we read of Noah, that we read of, of his family, that we read of, you know, these passengers of the ark once they come out and, and enter into the world. 
God tells us the very first thing they did, and at least this is the first thing recorded, is Noah went to work building an altar. Actually, it says builded, past tense. He builded an altar unto Jehovah. And then he took of the clean animals and clean fowls and sacrificed them. That's what it means to offer burnt offerings. You have to slay them and then burn them on the altar. Why is that the first thing recorded? Why doesn't God tell us they went around just inspecting the landscape? They searched the land for food. They they looked at the condition of the ground and the condition of trees. You know, there's an endless number of things God could have told us or God could have moved them to do and recorded it for us instead of uh, immediately going to work on an altar and, and building an altar and offering sacrifice. Why is this the first thing, the very first thing that, that we're told that, that God is revealing concerning this new world? Now, we're very interested in this because, again, the historical event that's going on here is picturing very closely the events at the end of the world. The the events that the people of God will experience at the end of the world, again, at the time of transition from this world to the next. Well, is there going to be some sort of sacrifice or some sort of atonement performed at the end of the world or, or at the very start foundation of the new world or of the new earth? And the answer is yes, yes. But the sacrifice has already been performed. The altar has already been built. And it is that sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ that he made at the foundation of the world. Now, we we know the Bible tells us in Revelation 13 that Jesus is the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. The Bible also tells us in Hebrews chapter 4 and in verse 3, For we which have believed do enter into rest. As he said, as I have sworn in my wrath, if they shall enter into my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. The work of Christ was finished at the foundation of the world. Now, how theologians get around that statement, you know, they they say concerning Jesus as the lamb slain from the foundation of the world, well, well, God is just speaking theoretically. Uh, he He's talking about what will happen when Christ enters into history and goes to the cross in 33 AD. 
And since God um, has willed it to happen, it's as good as though it has happened. And, well, well, how do you have finished works that are theoretical? It, no, you can't have a finished work, a completed work, a work that has been done and performed and accomplished. And the, the only way you can have a finished work is if the work itself has been actually done. And and so we see that Hebrews 4.3 harmonizes with Revelation 13, verse 8, that Christ indeed was the Lamb slain, not theoretically, but in actuality at the foundation of the world. And in his death at the foundation of the world, he finished the work, the atoning work that the law demanded be done on behalf of the ones that he was dying for. All of the elect whose names are recorded, the Bible tells us, in a figure in the Lamb's Book of Life. And so, there is the foundation of the world. Which world? Well, you know, uh, for a long time, um, I, I was a little confused about that, and I don't think I was alone. And and I remember sometimes when referring to Revelation thirteen eight, I would say Christ was the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world, and people would correct me, and they say, no, it doesn't say before; it says from. And, and so I started getting very careful and saying from instead of before. But, see, a lot of us have the wrong idea that, that Christ was slain and, and then God created the world. It's sort of where we have it in our mind in sort of a time sequence. Jesus is killed. Then God speaks in Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And we think one event, the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, occurs, and immediately thereafter, the world is created. And, and, and I think I was thinking that. That's why I was saying Christ is slain before the foundation of the world. But, the biblical language is from the foundation of the world. And and as far as it, it's actually accurate to say that um, atoning work was before the world began, but it, it's uh, better to say from because it focuses us more on the completed action of Christ bearing sins, dying for the sins, and then being resurrected after successfully paying for the sins. And that work of Christ, the works that are finished from the foundation of the world, that work was performed at some point in eternity past. And I, I, I don't know that, you know, who knows about eternity past? How can creatures of time as we are understand eternity past? All we know 
is that God has always been, he's from everlasting to everlasting, and and uh, we we sort of see this world as right in the middle of these two eternal points, eternity past and eternity future, and here we are, creatures living under uh, a sun, moon, and stars that governs like a clock time. And, and so we're living in time. God is the creator of time because he created the celestial bodies, the sun, moon, and stars, and he created the world. So God created time. He, though, is an eternal being. He actually inhabits eternity, Isaiah tells us. And, and so he is beyond time. And, and somewhere in that point of eternity past, eternal God, the Lord Jesus Christ, did perform the work of atonement and completed the work. The work was finished. The works necessary to save his people were finished they they were they were done all of their sins were paid for and and then it was a matter of at some point again uh, how god determines as he dwells in eternity well at this particular point in eternity you know it's hard for us to comprehend points of eternity because we we think in terms of time. We we can understand day one and year one and 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 year one hundred and year one thousand, and and we see a progression, and, and that's the way our minds are designed. And because we are made in a world governed by time, we're creatures of time. We all have a time limit upon us, insofar. As our lifespans are concerned, as we live in this world, we, we will one day die once we have reached the fullness of days, the, the time allotted to us that God has determined to give each one of us. But God, again, and eternity is not in time, and, and therefore God can perform actions in eternity past, and and again the sequence of those actions are a little muddled to our minds but all we know is that at some point in that eternity past the things we read about in the bible concerning Jesus the lamb of god being slain took place here's a verse that sort of illustrates what that means that Christ is slain uh, from the foundation of the world, it says in Psalm 103, verse 17, But the mercy of Jehovah is from everlasting to everlasting upon them that fear him. Now, we understand very well why the mercy of Jehovah is to everlasting, because God saves us, and again, in the world, he... He forgives us our sins, he grants us eternal life, and we will live forever. So, no matter how far we go, how long we live, uh, 
into eternity future, and it will be forever. And so as we go on and on and on and on and on living, for as long as we live at any point in that eternal life, it's all a result of God's mercy. It is God's mercy is too everlasting. And we understand that. But why does Psalm 103.17 tell us that the mercy of Jehovah is from everlasting? Well, that doesn't make sense if Christ paid for our sins in 33 AD. It doesn't uh, explain why God has had mercy upon us from everlasting. Because if it were true, and it's not, but if it were true that Jesus, when he entered into the world in time, bore our sins again in time, paid for our sins in 33 AD in time, dying for them then, and rising from the dead victoriously, and if that were the finished work of Christ performed on behalf of his people, that's all occurring in time. That's the point then wherein God's mercy begins upon his elect. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says from everlasting to everlasting, God has mercy upon his people. And once again, We find harmony with the Bible once we understand the Lord Jesus Christ is the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. And that death that that he died, that being slain, that that work that he finished at, at the foundation of the world or from the foundation of the world was a work performed in eternity past. And again, that's mysterious to us. We cannot pinpoint a, a specific time. You see how our minds work? We we want to we want to go to a time in eternity past. Well, there is no time in eternity past. That that's why I say point. But that finished work of Christ was performed at a point In eternity past, therefore, God's mercy upon his elect is from everlasting to everlasting future. Now we have agreement and harmony with the Bible. I wonder how theologians, how people who insist, stubbornly, rebelliously insist that Christ paid for sins at the cross, it can explain why God says his mercy is upon those that he saves from everlasting. Well, again, they would minimize the statement. They would empty it of its wonderful glory and and speak of a theoretical statement. And, and, and of course, it's just cover. It, it's just trying to make the Bible fit their doctrine they insist upon. The truth is much clearer, much more straightforward and simpler as far as understanding goes 
We just put the verses together. Revelation 13.8, Hebrews 4.3, Psalm 103.17, all fit together well, perfectly as a matter of fact, and confirm once again that yes, we understand this point of doctrine exactly as the Bible teaches it, that Christ died for the sins of his people, the foundation of the world. Well, Lord willing, our next study will will see how that death of Christ at the foundation of the world formed the basis of a foundation, not only for this world, but for the world to come. Thanks for joining us for eBible Fellowship's Evening Bible Studies. You can hear these studies Monday through Friday over PalTalk, Skype, eBible Fellowship's webcast audio, or over your phone. For more information or to hear other studies, visit www.ebiblefellowship.com. Until our next study, may the Lord's perfect will be done.